WGNS Murfreesboro, W270AF Murfreesboro, W263AI Murfreesboro, Smyrna. The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now, your host, Scott Walker. Thanks for tuning in to the Action Line on this Friday morning. Today, the 21st of January, we have a great show for you this morning. Several years ago, we did an interview on a man named Glenn King. With a brief summary on what today's topic is about and today's guest, we head to CBS News. CBS Ion Veterans, presented by TheraWorks Relief. In Murfreesboro, Tennessee, there's a well-known vet in town. I dropped out of high school and joined the Marines. Glenn King served in two wars, met President Truman while serving at what became Camp David, then took a job in missile development. These days, he's the old guy deploying plush toys. I decided I'd start collecting those to give to the children. And not just kids, elderly neighbors, too. Here's Glenn's friend, Jeffrey Urchel. He tells people he gets them from the teddy bear orphanage. 4000 he's given away already in the last two years. Why? He told Scott Walker of radio station WGNS. The day is awful long if a retired person doesn't have something to do. Chaz Henry, ConnectingVets.com for CBS News. Make sure you stay with us throughout this morning on the Action Line. We'll tell you more about Glenn King, his life, and all the history within it. For WGNS News on the Action Line this morning, I'm Scott Walker. This is Fleet Feet owner Krista Dugosh. At Fleet Feet, we focus on providing you with the running and walking shoes that fit properly. Fleet Feet Murfreesboro is locally owned and operated. Fleet Feet Murfreesboro, two doors down from Carabas at the intersection of Medical Center Parkway and Thompson Lane. When you're Middle Tennessee's community bank, you have a greater responsibility than just offering a menu of financial services. We make it our mission to know our neighbors, meet their needs, and invest in the communities we serve. Whether we are working with our students to build their youth savings or partnering with a local business owner to fulfill their dreams, our goal is always to make our communities even stronger. Thank you for allowing us to be part of the fabric of Rutherford County and always supporting us in our efforts to serve you and give back and grow. Member FDIC. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Welcome back to the Action Line on WGNS for a Friday morning. This World War II veteran could be described as having a rugged exterior standing about six feet tall with grit in his face that says, tread lightly. When we first met King, he was 89 years old. He's a U.S. Marine who now calls Murfreesboro, Tennessee home, and he has worked at the top secret Area 51 base controlled and built heat-seeking missiles in Alabama, and even ate dinner with President Truman at Camp David. Uh, Of course, it wasn't called Camp David during President Truman's time. Uh, We'll get to that part of the story in a little while. Glenn King also has a heart that you may not see upon a simple glimpse. He has handed out well over 3,800 stuffed animals to children 
Alzheimer's patients, and even kids who were involved in car accidents or house fires. World War II Marine Glenn H. King is not your average senior citizen. He has seen and been involved in the history of America. He has also been a part of our nation's military defense system. I sat down with Mr. King in his Murfreesboro home a couple of years ago and talked to him in depth about his service to America and more. We're talking with Glenn King, and first of all, you're a World War II veteran. You also served in Korea as well. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that first. During, during World War II, it's different than any of the other wars that we've had since. The youth of America couldn't wait until they're old enough to enlist in the armed forces. At, at my age, I waited until I was old enough to enlist, and it was, the war was coming to an end. And uh, I dropped out of high school and joined the Marines. And I tell people that the word must have gotten out to the Japanese because they surrendered. So how old were you when you actually enlisted? I, barely 17. Where, where did you go after boot camp and all of that? Well, I went, went over uh, to uh, Okinawa. And, you know, when I, when I came back to the States, I was stationed in the Marine barracks in Washington, D.C., which was really, really choice duty because we were assigned to the White House and we did a lot of traveling with President Truman. So did you actually have interactions with President Truman back then? Yes, uh, especially on the weekends. When President Roosevelt was president, he found out that there was a CCC camp 80 miles west of Washington. And it was on top of a mountain in Thurmont, Maryland, which was just 20 miles from Gettysburg, narrow dirt road. He commandeered the CCC camp for his rest camp, and he named it Shangri-La. All of the buildings were World War II-style buildings. They were all built of wood. The president's uh, lodge was a one-story wooden building, and since he had the president, the presidential party on up there, we all met. We all would eat uh, three meals a day in the CCC mess hall. And in the, in the mess hall down the middle was a great big curtain. And the president's party was on one side and the Marine detachment was on the other side. And every once in a while, President Truman would come and swing that curtain back and come and sit down and talk to us. And normally what he would say is, son, uh, what state are you from? And then when they mentioned the state, oh, I know your senator real well, real well. He, he, he really made us feel at ease. You said the CCCC. What is that? Civilian Conservation Corps. It was uh, established right after Roosevelt became president. And it took the young men into a situation that was similar to them being in the army, but they weren't. But they did wear uniforms. What they did, they did an awful lot of reforestation and built an awful lot of things that you find in state parks and uh, national parks. They built them well, and they're still in use today. Jeffrey, you know Glenn. You come over here quite often and everything. How do you pronounce your last name, by the way? Urchel. It's Jeff Urchel. Urchel. Glenn didn't mention that uh, maybe he should have. Uh, he told us about uh, 
FDR and the CCC camps. Now the CCC camps were actually brought out as part of the depression as a means to get the people, the young men who weren't working to work. That was what FDR was doing. And my uncle who died in the, when he was in his nineties was a member of the CCR and in upper Wisconsin, he planted thousands of evergreen trees and you can drive around up in upper Wisconsin and you can see these evergreens just lined in a row all along the highways. The CCR boys did that and they built a camp that was on a lake and we went to that camp at one point and fished with my uncle. Uh, also, he mentioned Shangri-La, FDR did Shangri-La. Well, when Truman took it over, it was renamed to Camp David which you're probably more familiar with than Shangri-La, but it was one and the same. Again this morning on the WGNS Action Line, we're talking with a World War II veteran whose rugged exterior hides his heart of gold. When we come back, we will learn more about King and some of the things that he has been involved in over the years, some of which were highly secretive at the time with the federal government. You're tuned into the Action Line on this Friday morning, today the 21st of January. We'll check on today's forecast in just a second, but make sure you stay with us for more of our interview with World War II veteran Glenn King. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website and Alexa or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Restoration One of Middle Tennessee. A team of experts and immediate responders who help homeowners after disaster strikes. After disaster strikes. Fire, water, or storm damage. We can help you get your life back to normal quickly. Restoration One, MiddleTennessee.com. Locally and better. This is Sean Brown at Tire World on Broad Street. Did you know we specialize in commercial and fleet business? We're equipped to handle all of your company's automotive needs. Download our Tire World app today for free oil changes and electronic coupons. Come by today for all of your automotive needs. Online at tireworld.us. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is Chip Walters, and you're listening to Rutherford County's Blue Raider Station. Yeah, we got them. MTSU Sports on WGNS AM, FM, online. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Welcome back to the Action Line on this Friday morning. Today, the 21st of January, as WGNS celebrates 75 years of broadcasting. This morning, an interview with Glenn King, a World War II veteran whose life is almost written like a movie. Not only did King serve during World War II, he also had a chance to have dinner with President Truman. At the time, King was a U.S. Marine. He also worked once at the top secret Area 51 base. And after spending his time in the military, 
he headed to the civilian world, but he wasn't too far away from the world of military. He worked at the Redstone Arsenal, which is located in the area of Huntsville, Alabama. The Redstone Arsenal was born of the war effort in World War II. There, a handful of missiles, some of which are still used today, were developed. And Murfreesboro resident Glenn King played a role in a lot of that. We're talking with Glenn King, and you're a World War II veteran. You also served in Korea as well. So at this point, you're a Marine. You're traveling around with the president, President Truman, and going to different functions, it sounds like, with him. Well, we, we did a lot of ceremonial stuff out in the grounds at the White House, you know, when they had dignitaries come. And we were out there parading around. What else did you do while in the service? Because I'm sure it was much different when compared to today's service members. Well, the big thing that I remember during the uh, Korean War, I was assigned to a Marine Corps fighter squadron, VMF-144, and there were two very important people there that were left over from World War II. They thought there would never be another war, so after the war ended, since they were pilots, they would stay in the reserve and once a month go on out and have a lot of fun flying the fighter planes around. They were two baseball players. One was Jerry Coleman, and then the other one was Ted Williams. You got to meet Ted Williams. Yes. Yeah. What, yeah. what was he like? Oh, he was very personal. You know, he was an officer and I was enlisted, so we didn't get to mingle with each other. There was a status. <laughs> I had no idea that Ted Williams was ever an officer in the Marines. I, I yeah, bet a lot of people, Ted, and he flew Ted, planes. Ted Williams was was a fighter pilot in uh, World War Two. so in Jerry Coleman. During the Korean War, Ted Williams was the wingman for John Glenn. These are big names that you're yeah. talking about here, and, and these are names that made history yeah. and changed history, yeah. I would say, in a whole lot of ways. Yeah. Do uh, you think you saw, got close to these history changers and caught a glimpse of what was to come in the future as far as sports and also with maybe the NASA program even? Yeah, well, after I got out of the university, I... Uh, Eventually ended up uh, working for the federal government. I worked in Huntsville, Alabama at the Army Missile Command. What my job was is I ended up managing several of the major air defense missile systems. One was the Stinger and the Red Eye, the shoulder-held missile systems. Then there was the Nike Hercules. And then from there is the Hawk, Hawk missile. In the last system that I had was the Patriot. And the Patriot missile, uh, it, it was highly classified for a long time until the Gulf War. And after the Gulf War started, the first time they fired a Patriot, the high classification came, came off because what it was is that missile, uh, when it was fired, it's like a bullet hitting a bullet. The things you're mentioning, the military and their use of force and their power and all that, um, the missiles you're talking about, these are things that are in history books. I I mean, these are not just small things that were utilized by the military over time. Well, they're still using some of the systems like the the Red Eye and the Stinger. They're heat seekers. And... uh, 
One of the reasons that the Russians left Afghanistan is we gave the Afghanis good number of red-eye and stinger heat-seeking missiles. We objected to sending them over, but we got overridden by higher authority. But the, the Afghanis, what they did with the missiles is they shot down numerous Russian aircraft, and the Russians figured it wasn't worth staying over there and getting our aircraft shot out from under us, so they left, and we're stuck over there. You were on the ground floor, so to speak, of seeing these missiles and how they operate and how they're going to be used. One of, one of the things that I was very, very involved in is the training of the armed forces as to how to use the missile systems, which was very interesting. How were they used back then? Back, back then, we, uh, we didn't have any enemies that were trying to encroach on us where we needed to use them. So it wasn't until the Gulf War that we got to use some of them. Now, I've been retired for over 30 years, so the state of the art of the missiles has obviously changed a good bit in 30 years. But the missiles that you were seeing and, and I guess working on and, and a part of, those were the foundation of the missiles today. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Do you ever stop and think, wow, you know, I, I had something to do with oh. real history here? Oh, never gave it any thought that way. One of the things that I always felt very proud of, some of the missile systems that I worked with were headed up by military officers that were the project managers. And in some cases, I was about 10 years older than, than my boss. As a result, we bonded, even though I was a civilian and they were military. One, one of my bosses that started out as lieutenant colonel ended up as a major general. And he uh, really took good care of me. <laughs> we're talking with World War II veteran Glenn King here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. These uh, officers that you interacted with once you were a civilian working for the federal government, um, it, it was a much different interaction at that time compared to when you were enlisted in the Marines. Yeah. Well, I, I remember one time. <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, you're fine. I was, I was up in Boston at the uh, Raytheon plant for the Hawk missile, and I got a call from my office, and they said, Glenn. The Colonel Drostek is in El Paso at Fort Bliss at a special high-level meeting, and he wants you to come and join him. So I said, fix my itinerary so that I can fly down there. And the thing that was real flattering, when I walked into the building on the military post where he was holding a meeting, I walked in, he, he was talking to some other colonels. He turned around, saw me, came over, put his hand over my shoulder, and he said, Glenn, he said, I hope you're down here to keep, help keep me out of trouble. The meeting was about to stop, and there might have been 20 officers there. And of course, I'm a civilian in civilian business suit. So I'm sitting off to the side. I look over at the, at the colonel, and he beckons me. He says, come on over here. So I said, he went over, and I said, uh, here I am. He says, pull up your chair and sit next to me, which made me feel real proud. The other thing that he did that I was proud of. He asked me if I would head up an organization that Dr. Von Braun headed on up. It was the logistics engineers at Redstone Arsenal, and Dr. Von Braun 
originally was in charge of all of them. And I told him, I said, you know, it's not that I can't do it, but you're overlooking one thing. At my civilian GS grade, I can't call up colonels and say, I want you to do this because they'd laugh at me because I don't have any clout over them. He said, I never thought of that. You started out as a 17-year-old high school dropout. Yeah. And then not too long after that, you're part of the nation's most secretive missile system or systems. Mm. Did you go back to school? I went to school on the GI Bill. I went to the University of Florida. GI Bill back then paid $75 a month, and $75 a month would barely get you through three weeks. The The last week was peanut butter and jelly and going to the socials that the churches had for the students. Now, where are you originally from? Where did you actually enlist? My home is in Rhode Island. I, I enlisted in Boston, which was just 50 miles from my home. So you started in Boston, and then your last day on the job after the military in the federal government was where? At Redstone Hostel in Huntsville, Alabama. And Dr. Von Braun, who I guess was... He was head of NASA. But at, at one time, NASA was part of the Army. It was the Army Ballistic Missile Agency earlier. Then it became NASA. He is known, of course, worldwide. Mm-hmm. And he's another one of those figures in history who students in school, if they don't read about, they probably should. Yeah. But what types of things was he behind or did you interact with him on? Well, I, I didn't have that, that close of a relationship with him because he broke off from the Army in uh, formed NASA. Breaks off from the Army and forms, literally forms NASA. He's the founding father almost, I guess you would yeah, say, yeah, of NASA. Yes. He is very well thought of, and uh, they named a big civic center after him in Huntsville, the Von Braun Civic Center. I don't think school students today, if they heard you talking about this, I don't, I don't know that they would realize some of the, uh, I guess, amazing things that you saw from the start. At the end of the World War II, General Madaris went to Panamunde, where Von Braun was there with his missile team. Half the team went to Russia, and General Madaris took the other half to the United States, but he brought them down to White Sands, New Mexico. And White Sands, New Mexico is somewhat of a desert. And the Germans were used to mountains and green forests and so forth. They were very, very unhappy there. So the general realized this. So he came on up to Huntsville, and there was a military base that was used in World War II that was dormant, Redstone Hostel. And he brought some of the Germans on up there, and they could see on the other side of Huntsville a small mountain, Monsanto. And they absolutely fell in love with the place, so he brought all of the Germans from White Sands up to Huntsville. They really fell in love with the place and uh, became a very active part of this community. To this day, I guess there's still a lot of German descendants who live in the Huntsville, Alabama area. A good good number of them. And one thing that uh, I liked about Huntsville, they had a couple of real nice German restaurants. Really, really good food. 
So was Huntsville bigger and more active back then when compared to today? I compare Huntsville to Murfreesboro. Back there in the in the uh, in the sixties, Huntsville became an absolute boom town. And Huntsville was run by the old city fathers from the city cafe. And uh, they weren't very progressive. So new people that came into Huntsville from all over the United States, they're all highly educated people. And some of them decided to run for office. And they ran for office and uh, took over the running of the Huntsville government and really made it a very, very booming progressive city you know when when i'd go to work at redstone Hospital, there's sixty-five thousand people there are a lot of people that work there and the infrastructure was such that wait wait you're saying sixty-five thousand people work redstone for the federal government or the military yeah at redstone Hospital. that that's like yeah. half the size of the city of murfreesboro yeah. i mean that's huge well the the one thing is there was a shortage of houses because it was an absolute boom town. So I lived, I, I found that I could buy a house across the state line in Tennessee, which was just 30 miles away, for 25% less than in Huntsville. So I moved across the state line. But the thing that was nice, there was a two-lane highway that they made a four-lane highway. When the highway hit Huntsville, right through the center of Huntsville, Every place that there was a crossroad, there was an overpass. And I could go to work right through the center of Huntsville, 65 miles an hour. And not have to stop. Did you get really pulled bad. over ever? Yeah. <laughs> Let's kind of speed up to today. You've got a lot of history under your belt, and I'm sure you learned a lot of history, too, oh, yeah. over the years. Today, you live here in in South Murfreesboro, mm-hmm. you took on a little project because you don't like sitting still. No. The, the day is awful long if a retired person doesn't have something to do. You know, I amused myself for three years doing the genealogy, but then when I moved to Murfreesboro into the golfing community, although I don't play golf, I bought a golf cart. And it's all flat land here, and so it's really nice to drive around. And I noticed there are a lot of young couples with children. And I would stop and talk to the parents and talk to the children and ask the parents, is it all right for them to have a lollipop? It was funny with the children. I had a basket filled with little lollipops. They were all in wrappers, and the children would look and look and look to pick out the one that they wanted. And once they took off the wrapper, all the lollipops are the same. Now, the the other thing that I noticed is a lot of these people had dogs. So I'd ask the mother or the father there, I'd say, is it all right for me to give the dog a treat? And I had dog biscuits. And I'd give the dog some dog biscuits. Well, there have been some cases where I'd go the same route around and, and see the same parents with the children and the dog would recognize me. A couple of times, the, the dog would jump up into my golf cart and up into my lap to get the dog biscuit. I found uh, a sauce of very inexpensive, real nice stuffed animals, teddy bears and all types of animals. 
and I decided I'd start collecting those to give to the children. One of my policies in going around on my golf cart, I never would contact a child unless the parents were there. I always made sure the parents were there, and I always asked the parents, is it all right if I give them a stuffed animal? And, of course, they're all delighted. And, of course, in the back of my golf cart, I had a big black bag just filled with them. Take the bag on out, and I'd dump it on the ground. Maybe 15, 20 would come out on the ground, and the children would look and in amazement. They'd never seen so many. And then they take forever to try to pick out the one that they wanted. And the thing that's so amusing is many times they'd pick out one that the parents thought, oh, you could do better than that. That's a nicer one. But they picked out the one that they want. It, it didn't take long here in this neighborhood to saturate the children with stuffed animals. I know I went up to one house where there, there were three or four children playing, and I pulled on up my golf cart, and I was going to see about giving the children again some stuffed animals. A voice from the second-story window said, No more bears! So... I've saturated the, the neighborhood pretty much with, with stuffed animals. So I figured, well, I'll expand. So what, what I did, I, I put the animals in my pickup truck or my automobile. And many times when my wife and I were at one of the local restaurants, many of the families today have the children there. So I'll go on out to my car and bring in the, some animals for them. And the children just go crazy for them. Another place that I found was good for giving out animals in some of these shopping centers. I'll be shopping in, in, a, in a building and I'll see the parents with the children and I'll wait until the parent comes out of the building with the child or children and I'll have some, some bears and I'll ask, all right, oh, the children just go crazy to get, to get them. Another, another place that I've given out numerous bears to child care centers in this geographic area. Children just go crazy with them. There might be 15 or 20 kids there. Another another place that, that I brought a lot of uh, bears to, there's a building here in town that I was told about that cares for single mothers. And I'll go there with a big bag full of uh, animals to give to the children of the, of the mothers that are there. Uh, so do you still do this today? Yes. <laughs> Last night I gave out 14. A couple of the other places that I've given out a lot of bears to, because I saw on television one time a policeman with a bear giving it to a child that, whose parents were in an accident. So I went to, went to the police department and asked them if they would like to have some. And uh, the first time I went, I brought them 150 bears. I thought I'd expand from the police department and I'd go to the fire department. The last time I went, uh, the firemen didn't know what they were getting involved in coming on out to my pickup truck to get so many, but I gave maybe 175 at one time. Of all the animals that I've given out, I select teddy bears, real teddy bears, about 24 inches high. And I've made arrangements with three different hospitals here in town. 
to go to. And when I go there and meet with my point of contact, they assign me a nurse, and the nurse will escort me around to the different patients' rooms. All of the patients are Alzheimer patients. When I get to the entrance of, of a room where there's an Alzheimer patient, most of them are females. The patient is sitting in a chair, staring down at the floor. There's no emotion in their face. They hear or see the nurse and myself in the doorway and they look on up. The patient sees that I have a big bear in my hand and the expression on that Alzheimer patient's face just absolutely changes to a look of joy and they instinctively put their hands on out to get the bear. And I'll come and I'll give, give them the beer and they'll take it and they'll hug it and they'll squeeze it. And I'll stay a minimum amount of time with the, with the patient talking. And when it's time to leave, I'll tell them it's time to leave. And the patient almost invariably will put their hand out to mine. I'll grasp their hand and they won't turn me loose. They want me to stay. But the feedback that I get from the nurses is that after I've given them those teddy bears, there's not a place that they ever go that they don't have the bear with them. You were once at the foundation of our country's military defense system. A little bit later than that. (laughs) You were part of, I guess, some of the founding changes of our military defense system here in America. And then once you retire, a guy who's got his hands on missiles now has his hands on teddy bears. That's quite the change, wouldn't you say? It's been fun. Again on the action line this Friday morning, we're talking with Glenn King, a World War II veteran. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we've got even more for you. For WGNS on the action line this morning, I'm Scott Walker. A check on the traffic is next, and then more from Glenn King. Good morning. It's still a slow go from that wreck 24 westbound at Hickory Hollow Parkway. They're moving all the damaged vehicles, and it just aggravated all that traffic flow headed towards Nashville on 24 westbound. We're looking at a pretty good delay up through there right now. Gatlinburg Wine Cellar, home of the world-famous cotton candy wine. Check them out at GatlinburgWineCellar.com. I'm Commander Chuck, and you're on time traffic. Hi, this is Gator with Tire World Off-Road. We're your local rough country dealer. So when you're ready to add some character to your rig, ask for Gator at Tire World Off-Road on Memorial Boulevard. This is Sean Brown at Tire World on Broad Street. Online at tireworld.us. Gandy Seafood is your crawfish headquarters. This is Chuck Gandy with Gandy Seafood Company. Crawfish season is now through the 4th of July. Gandy Seafood offers cooked and live crawfish along with customized crawfish boiling kits. The Gandy Seafood Cajun Market on Memorial Boulevard across from Sportscom. You're tuned in to the WGNS Action Line on this Friday morning. Again today, the 21st of January. We've been talking with Glenn King, a World War II veteran. And in this final segment, we'll learn a little bit more about King and talk to his friend, Jeffrey Urchel, about how King has brought so many smiles to so many people. Jeffrey, you know Glenn. What has sparked your attention? Just the givingness of the man. He's always got a smile, he's always happy, and he just loves to give. And he gives for free. He gets these teddy bears and he tells people he gets them from the the teddy bear orphanage. He won't tell where his source is. 
4,000 he's given away already in the last two years. That's just out of his own pocket and his time and his love for the people of Murfreesboro and the children and the mothers. And and you've gotten to witness some of these giving trips, if you would. Oh, yeah. There's a uh, rehab place here in town, which is a lot of Alzheimer's patients. <laughs> it's also rehab for joint surgery. My sister had hip surgery. She was in there for rehab. She was in a room for two, and the lady on the other side of the room, Mary, I think was her name, she was, she, she had Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and she was in and out of being there, disappear mentally, and then she'd come back, and when she came back, they could have a conversation. During all that time that my sister was there, nobody ever came to visit her. She was always sitting in her chair with her head hung down. It it was just on her chest. And Glenn came in, and he brought her a teddy bear. And uh, she grabbed that teddy bear, and Jackie told me she hugged it, and it was with her all the time. It was like her mother instinct came out, Mm -hmm. and this was her child. You'd see, as he passed out more around there, I'd see the the ladies and even the men in their wheelchairs sitting in the halls, because that's what Alzheimer patients do. They sit in the halls and they argue or just be quiet or talk to themselves or they're in their beds, but they're holding their teddy bears or their little animals. I'd like to go back and talk about a few things. Glenn didn't mention that uh, maybe he should have. He mentioned he was in the missile program. He had a very high security clearance extremely high, higher than his bosses. So he tells joyous stories of how he could not tell where he was going because it was top secret. So when he went to, oh, Area 51, he's been to Area 51 and he can't speak about it. So he would get an order to go to Area 51. All he could do was write down the nearest town. He could not write on his papers, Area 51, so he wrote Las Vegas. So his boss would always get on him and say, what are these boondoggles you're doing going to Las Vegas all the time? I'm going to deny this one. And Glenn says, go ahead and deny it. So his boss denied it, and a few hours later, it was the colonel's called, the general's called, and the boss said, you're going to Las Vegas. <laughs> so, so even his own boss did not realize he was not really going to Vegas. He was going somewhere close by that was top secret. Absolutely. But he could never mention where he was going to his boss. Uh, I couldn't put down the name of the military installation. It had to be the name of the city. And the purpose of the trip was special assignment for the U.S. government. And that just blew my boss's mind. Because <laughs> his boss didn't have as high a security as he did. Well, maybe he's too proud to tell you, but his relatives were on the Mayflower. He is a Mayflower descendant, and he's got the credentials to prove it. All the paperwork had to be proved and everything. And he can go back through time. And in his genealogy, he sees that... Uh, Number two man to George Washington. Nathaniel Green is one of his relatives. He was the number two man for George Washington. Oliver Perry, he's got 26, did you say? 27. 
members of the family fought in the American Revolution. Just in the Revolution alone. So 27 members of Glenn's family fought in the American Revolution. Yeah. Plus members in the Revolution, a whole world of history that he's wow. lived through. He saw the Hindenburg. It sailed over their grade school and they were allowed out of class to run outside and see the Hindenburg. And it went over their heads and then it exploded when it landed in. Crashed and burned in Lakehurst, New Jersey. You didn't see the Hindenburg crash. You saw it fly over your school yeah, in amazement. Yes. Yeah. yes. And the next thing you know, three hours later, <clears throat> it's gone. This would be, I guess, in comparison or similar to in 1984 when those who are 40 years old were in elementary school and they were watching TV and they saw the Challenger explode. Absolutely. So that Hindenburg, that would be a similar experience <coughs> for a lot of people, yeah. We have been talking to U.S. Marine World War II veteran Glenn King and his friend who was talking all about him in a positive way, Jeff Urchel. Thanks for listening this morning to the Action Line on WGNS, celebrating our 75th anniversary. We'll save and post this show as a podcast on WGNSRadio.com. Just click on our podcast section, then Action Line, and then you'll find today's program. For WGNS on this Friday, I'm Scott Walker. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com.